Welcome to the District Podcast. I'm Ben Dominich, Editor-at-Large at The Spectator World, and I am happy to be joined right now by Will Inbiden, who is, uh, among other things, a, a wonderful foreign policy expert, also someone who has shepherded a war on the rocks and also worked within a number of different realms and in, in former administrations as well. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thank you, Ben. It's great to be with you. I wondered if you could answer just a basic question for me. I I remember this because I was a nerd who had no friends. And so I studied up on, on various things that happened politically in, in the run up to the 1980s. But what was the original definition of the October surprise? Sure. Yes. And this will be somewhat ancient political history for quite a few of our listeners, but uh, and, and those of an older generation will have some memory of it. So to recap, in 1979, after the Iranian revolution, when the militant theocracy takes over Iran and ejects the Shah, <clears throat> as the United States embassy had stayed open, radical militants stormed the embassy, take it over, and take hostage 52 of the American officials there. I say officials because it included State Department diplomats, CIA officers, administrative officers, and, and the Marine Guards as well. And the militants then proceeded to hold captive those 52 hostages for about a year and a half. I think it's 444 days exactly. And it transfixes the world. It's a prolonged humiliation for the United States, especially the Jimmy Carter presidency. Carter's trying everything he can to get them released. He's negotiating. He's offering concessions. He launches a very ill-fated rescue mission, which results in the deaths of several American service members and doesn't free any hostages. In the midst of this, Ronald Reagan gets the Republican nomination for the presidency to challenge Jimmy Carter. And Reagan presses his foreign policy critique of Carter on many fronts. You know, Carter's been weak in the face of growing Soviet strength. He uh, was passive as the Soviets invaded Afghanistan, et cetera, et cetera. And especially Carter's so weak that he's allowing these American hostages to be held by this radical regime and doing nothing, you know, nothing effective to get them, get them freed. The Reagan campaign worried uh, – this, this comes to the original October surprise question. The Reagan campaign worried, not without some evidence, that Carter might try to wait until October, a few weeks before the November election, to then announce a big deal to release the hostages. So this is the October surprise. And this would provide Carter in, in the telling a big political boost. And people now say, OK, maybe he wasn't so bad. After all, it's good news. Similar to how beleaguered incumbent presidents uh, like to announce good economic news a few weeks before an election, you know, you want some sort of political boost. And so the Reagan campaign had this fear for several months. That term October surprise later gets flipped after Reagan does win the election. Then the hostages don't get released until right after he's sworn in. Some Carter staff and operatives later flip October surprise and say the real October surprise was the Reagan campaign was quietly colluding with the Iranians to not release the hostages until after the election. This is their October surprise that the hostages won't be released to thereby ensure Reagan's Reagan's victory. Uh, so that's 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 how the term has since come to be used, even though the original meaning was just the opposite. So one of the things, obviously, that is I think a lot of our listeners are familiar with is the way that there's so much revisionist history, uh, you know, going back and, and regurgitating stories or reframing, reframing them in ways that benefit the people who are doing that framing. Uh, and the New York Times, of all places, including a responsible journalist and a friend of mine, Peter Baker, uh, ran with a story about this 
relatively recently, one which I think, you know, probably some of our listeners might even have missed, just given sort of the nature of it. And they've continued to run with this story. How did that play out? And what was the sourcing involved there? Yes. So, and again, I, I want to start with sharing your acclaim for Peter Baker, who is also a friend of mine and overall a first-rate political reporter. And I'll just say that full stop. Uh, he and I have had a friendly exchange about this story, and you know, we we agree to disagree on it. But I, I, want, I want to want to put that out there. So the 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 story is this that the New York Times just ran with last month and has since done done at least two follow-ups on a. Texas political figure who's now 85 years old named Ben Barnes has just come forward and says there really was an October surprise engineered by the Reagan campaign. I, Ben Barnes, traveled with former Texas governor and Nixon's Treasury Secretary John Connolly through several Middle Eastern countries in the summer of 1980. And John Connolly was carrying a message to those Middle Eastern countries. Please tell the Iranians on behalf of the Reagan campaign, hold on to the hostages. Don't release them until after the election. And then once Reagan wins, he'll cut a better deal with you uh, since he'll have, he'll, have, he'll have defeated Carter and he'll give you better terms to release the, the hostages. So this is the story that Ben Barnes is now coming out with, uh, which, you know, he had otherwise, except for one small exception, never said anything about for 43 years. Yeah. I mean, that's just not all that believable in terms of a, uh, in terms of a frame for sourcing and, and the various motives involved, you know, when it comes to Barnes story uh, about what he's saying happened with Connolly, how much of that is something that's actually testable, verifiable, something that you could figure out by looking back at records and the like, and how much of it seems like just total conjecture and uh, and something that there was no contemporaneous reporting about that would have indicated whether he was telling the truth or not? Yeah, no, that's a great way to put it. And, you know, I'll stay up front. And as you know, I've just co-authored a recent article trying to debunk this. The story is almost certainly false. I mean, it, to, it, it is almost impossible that this is actually true. I say almost certainly false and almost impossible because you can't fully prove a negative, right? I mean, the only people that really know what happened would have been those in those rooms with John Connolly and Ben Barnes and say, you know, Anwar Sadat, the Egyptian president or the other heads of state they, they met with. However, and some of my frustration, quite a bit of my frustration with these series of New York Times articles that rather credulously accept this is true. The more you do look into it, there is not only no independent verification of this. There are very, very good reasons to believe that it's not true at all. Any of the indications one would normally look for to demonstrate the validity or at least the plausibility of such a story just just aren't there at all. And I've been disappointed that the various national reporters have picked this up and run with this. I have not asked any of those, not even hard questions, just basic questions about if this could is true, then why did X, Y, and Z not happen? And I can go into some some of the details there, but I think what's going on is there's just, you know, a lot of the left-leaning media want to believe this because they want to be on Carter's side. They want to think that Reagan was more treacherous. And and there's a human tendency to want to you know, believe conspiracies. So. so tell me a little bit about some of the reasons that one might doubt this story. Uh, some of the things that we do know about the behavior of the individuals that might have been targeted along these lines and and what they did or did not do that would reflect that. Sure, absolutely. And this is where, you know, we'll have to dive a, somewhat deep into how American national security systems and processes and institutions work in the Middle East. But anyone with a, even a basic knowledge of this will immediately say, wait, this story does not pass the smell test. 
So first, there's a question about John Connolly himself. Okay, so he'd been earlier in his career was a Democrat, was the governor of Texas for a few terms, was with JFK in the limousine in Dallas when JFK was assassinated. And then the bullet actually hit John Connolly as well. So he's an icon. But Connolly was always more in the conservative Democrat tradition in Texas. And so a few years later, he switched parties and became a Republican, served in the Nixon administration, and then ran for president in 1980 as a Republican, challenging Reagan. In, in, in the primary. Of course, Reagan gets the nomination. Connolly doesn't. But Connolly then endorses Reagan, is supporting the Reagan campaign, is hoping to you know, get a cabinet appointment in, in, the, in the campaign. So the so first set of couple of questions one has to ask is, why on earth would Connolly have even thought he could get away with something like this? And given that Iran is a radical Shiite theocracy, and the other countries that Connolly and Barnes are visiting in the region are by and large Sunni Arabs, including some that are mortal enemies of Iran, such as Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Why on earth would Connolly think that asking some of Iran's mortal enemies to pass a sensitive diplomatic message like this would, would even work? That's the first part. The second part is why did he think if they're doing this, they could keep this secret? Nothing stays secret in the Middle East, right? I mean, you know, any region of the world has a gossip. The Middle East is particularly rife with, with, with gossip. And so for this to work, every foreign official, every Arab leader they would have met with and the staff who were in the room would have had to, you know, keep it secret for the rest of their lives that this has never come out from any of them before. And this is not just one meeting in one country. This is six countries that they're claiming that they, that, that, that they went to with this message. And then further, we now know, I'm not disclosing anything still classified here, American intelligence had very pervasive surveillance of what was going on in the Middle East. You know, human sources, signals intelligence, especially anything pertaining to Iran and the hostage crisis. And the NSA director at the time, National Security Agency director, who is Admiral Bob Inman, who was monitoring all of the communications traffic throughout the Middle East, anything having anything to do with Iran and the hostages, went on record with us saying there was no indication of this whatsoever. There's no way that these messages could have been passed to these leaders and passed back to Tehran and our, our intercepts wouldn't have wouldn't have picked it up. And Inman, Inman is is emphatic about that. So I, I could give you others, but like I said, that's those are just some of the, the beginnings of why there's just absolutely no evidence for this, let alone why is this guy now waiting 43 years later to all of a sudden come out and say this when this this these allegations have been thoroughly investigated for decades before. Well, one of the things that I think is is interesting about this is that, you know, it comes a moment when, you know, I think a lot of people are, you know, increasingly skeptical of a lot of different things associated with the intel community with the, you know, quote unquote, deep state, you know, there's a lot of uh, rumor mongering and, you know, assumptions of kind of the all powerful nature mm -hmm. of it. And, you know, in reality, I think that it's actually been shown to be quite more fragile and brittle than I think we would like it to be in terms of, of what's going on. Obviously, you know, just most recently, this storyline guarding the leaked Ukraine documents is indicative of that. Yeah, fact. yeah, exactly. Is it actually possible? That someone like Connolly could have gone into this part of the world at that moment, delivering a message like this, and have no paper trail whatsoever, have no you know a bit uh, after action kind of reporting either from you know Mossad or from our own intelligence that he was offering something like this, because that to me is a, a major red flag about the storyline. Yeah, you're you're exactly right, and again. Let's, you know, one possible hypothetical, which is not the scenario that Biden says, 
would have been if Connolly would have met with one Iranian official, let's say in Paris or Geneva or something like that, one time only meets with one person, asks them to carry a message like this. Even that would have been really hard to keep secret the way that Iran works in the European Union. But that's not the allegation. The allegation from Barnes is that they go to you know, six different countries, five of which are Arab and one of which is Israel, and are making the same repeated quest in each of these countries to the senior leadership of that country and then asking for it to be passed along to to Iran. So this involves dozens, even scores of, of people, any one of whom, if it actually were true, could have could have could have disclosed it. Another thing we need to remember is Carter was the commander in chief and president of the United States at the time. And so all of our ambassadors in the region, our CIA uh, chiefs of station, our military liaison, they're all working for the Carter administration. I, I'm not saying that they're partisans or something like that, but if they were picking up any indications of this, they are bound by their oath of office to immediately pass it back to Washington, right? But they're, but they don't because they're not picking up any indications. And so, if, you know, if Connolly goes and, you know, meets with the president of uh, Lebanon, as one of the allegations is, and makes this request, that guy would immediately have called his friend, the American ambassador and saying, Hey, so do you know that this senior American official and, you know, presidential candidate is asking us to do this thing? Is this really uh, authorized? You really want this? Um, there was absolutely none of that. Uh, and so the, the silence is just deafening. I know that you are a student of history and someone who you know pays attention to a lot of this. I've heard different examples cited over the years of various presidential candidates who interface with foreign powers in attempts to do or accomplish various things. Tell me a little bit about what the actual real documented evidence is of any of these individuals actually engaging in this type of behavior. I know there's a Ted Kennedy example. I know that there are a couple of other uh, examples historically, but just things that come to mind of, of uh, various serious presidential candidates who interface with foreign powers in, in attempts to, you know, essentially bolster their own domestic campaigns with a, you know, foreign policy step taken on behalf of, of them in one way or the other. Yeah, I'll mention a couple of others. Obviously, the most infamous recent one, which has you know been largely disproven, of course, is Trump and Russia, you know, Russia Gate, right? Uh, the fabricated steel dossier and everything. But um, two others. One that you referenced is there is some evidence that in 1984, Senator Ted Kennedy who was not running for the nomination himself, but of course was supporting the Democrat nominee, Walter Mondale. Kennedy traveled to Moscow and, you know, kind of quietly asked the Kremlin to not do any, you know, diplomatic deals with Reagan or do anything favorable for Reagan, but you know, wait for some time for, for Mondale to get elected. There are smidgens of evidence for that. I wouldn't put that past Ted Kennedy, certainly, but the Reagan administration a couple of times had actually used Kennedy as their own back channel with, with, with the Kremlin and Kennedy valued keeping that, that channel open. And so even if he might've made a few intimations there, and there's frankly more evidence that he did that than anything about this October surprise, it didn't amount to much. The more uh, infamous one is Anna Chenault traveling to Vietnam in 1968, allegedly on behalf of the Nixon campaign to try to persuade South Vietnam to not go along with LBJ's peace negotiations to try to try to end, end the war. Again, there are smidgens of documentary. I mean, we know she traveled there. There's smidgens of documentary evidence. She might have made some of those requests. There's no evidence that the South Vietnamese authorities actually took that seriously or, or did anything with that. So I don't put a lot of stock on that one. But 
there's so much less evidence. I mean, there is no evidence for this October surprise allegation about Reagan in 1980. And that's why it's been frustrating seeing so much of the mainstream media picking this up so with so much uh, credulity and, and just running with it at, based on absolutely no evidence. I kind of had always put Ben Barnes in that category of, per, of people who are sort of old and cantankerous and you kind of took everything they said with a grain of salt. Why do you think that they're running with something like this based on just basically his claim? Yeah. And and I will also say, I know Ben a bit. You know, I'm here in Austin, Texas. He's a part-time resident of Austin. He's on the board of the foundation, helps fund the school I, I work for. Before as well, you, yes. him too. Yeah. Okay. Look, he's part, he's kind of a lovable rascal in some ways, right? He's very <laughs> colorful. He's fun. Yes. Uh, he's a great storyteller. But he is a partisan Democrat and a storyteller. I have not talked to him about this particular allegation or my effort to rebut it. I, if he reaches out, I'll be curious to, to hear his hear his take. I don't want to speculate on his motives here, but I will say, you know, looking at his past, it is not necessarily a past of uh, pure integrity and statesmanship and truth telling. <laughs> so we'll just we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. But um, so why so why is everyone picking it up? Like I said, I think for a lot of Democrat partisans, they want to believe it, right? They they you know. Carter is in his twilight days. You know, they've never come to peace with Reagan's you know, victory and then successful presidency. And and if you want to believe something, you know, confirmation bias kicks in and you're going to be a lot more willing to accept something that otherwise there's no evidence for. It's the, it's the George Costanza rule. It's not a lie if you believe it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so, Will, uh, let's uh, let's wrap up with this. You know, we obviously we are living through a time right now where the the foreign policy situation on the American right could not be more chaotic and going through a lot of different upheaval. I've had a number of guests on my program on Fox News and uh, and here at The Spectator, people who I've profiled and paid attention to who are working through a lot of the different next steps for foreign policy on the American right. As you see the current landscape, what do you think is happening to it and do you think that there is – Something in terms of a coalescing of opinion among the foreign policy, national security policy community on the right that looks like a combination of the the populism and the hawkishness that has run through the Republican Party in recent decades. Is there something that's coherent that's coming out of this mess or do you view it as kind of disaggregated and still chaotic with actually no real signs of coalescing. Yeah, I think more of the latter. And and I'd say that as someone who's not merely disinterested observer, right? I mean, I'm a scholar of this stuff, but I'm a practitioner and I'm, you know, it's a matter of public record. I'm more of the hawkish internationalist wing of the party, right? But but to try to give more of a analytical framing, th- these are recurring tendencies in the cycles of Republican political history, right? You know, going back to the 1930s, sometimes the more, you know, restrained or populist or isolationist wing of the party will be ascendant. And not for bad reasons, by the way, even though that's not my personal predilection, you know, these are serious critiques they have of American overstretch and neglecting our our, our needs at home and, 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 you know, liberal idealism run amok and so on and so forth. But you, you've seen, you know, I, I won't give a lengthy history lecture on this, but you've seen every 10, 20 years, these, these recurring cycles come up. So in some ways, we're living through another another one of those. But then we're also dealing with this strange ferment of, you know, over the past couple of decades, we've had costly failures in Afghanistan and then Iraq. You had the, the economic crisis. And so you've seen, uh, you know, some of the deficiencies of a unmitigated hawkish internationalism, if you will. But now we also have these new challenges, you know, 
aggressive China, you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the disastrous withdrawal from Afghanistan, right? So we didn't like what was happening in Afghanistan before, but now we've seen the alternative. That doesn't look so good either. And so I think there's understandable disaffection among many base Republicans, but we haven't yet coalesced behind either a new unified set of you know, party commitments or necessarily a clear candidate. And there, those things usually go together, right? I mean, there was, you know, I just finished publishing this big book on Reagan's foreign policy. And one of my big takeaways is all through the 1970s, there's major debates within the Republican Party over you know, between several wings over what it should be. Reagan stakes out firmly a hawkish internationalist camp, although some restraint on the use of force, but he doesn't fully resolve these debates until he wins the nomination and then wins the election. So there's in some ways, you know, these won't be f- fully resolved until we see who the candidate is and then what happens in 2024. So the, the thing that is interesting to me is that this particular moment in Washington, virtually everyone on both sides of the aisle disagrees about everything with one exception, and that being – the the idea that China is a major threat that needs to be addressed. Now, the degree to which they agree on what to do about that threat is really an open question. We've seen, you know, for instance, the back and forth over just the issue of banning TikTok. And so it's really kind of a, a, a an open question about whether there is an ability to find some kind of bipartisan unanimity on it. At the same time, though, the people who paid the most attention to that issue seem to be sounding the alarm very consistently that we are not either delivering the kind of, of material, weaponry, resources, et cetera, that Taiwan needs, or that we ourselves are, are ill-prepared for the kind of major great power conflict that could result from such a situation. How does that get changed around in an era in which the appetite for American involvement in war and conflict overseas just is is very low. I mean, it just it, people are they're tired of sending money. They're tired of. I mean, even in the instance of Ukraine, which is obviously a proxy war where we do do not have American group boots on the ground in a significant way, other than intelligence services. You know, even there, you see this kind of diminishing appetite from Republicans to be uh, voters to be involved in that or to be sending the kind of money that we've been sending. So how at that point do you turn around and basically say, we need to double down and send more money, more resources, more military equipment to the Taiwanese in anticipation of what every expert seems to expect to happen within the next couple of years? Yeah. And this is where, uh, in a perverse way, I'm somewhat of an optimist about eventually getting some sort of national consensus in this, precisely because the China threat is so clear and present and dangerous and, and of a first order. I mean, we are in a new Cold War with China. We may not like that. We may not have chosen it. We actually didn't choose it. But the adversary gets a vote. They have identified us as their main adversary, and and they have been acting on that for a couple of decades now. And we can do a whole other conversation about how we got here. But but starting with the fact that we have that clear clear threat, that at least forces a national debate of therefore what do we do about it. But a few years ago, there wasn't even a clear uh, consensus on on what what the what the threat is. Now at least we're there, including as you said, with quite a few Democrats, right? Uh, so you won't find a single Republican credible Republican who is a China dove. You know, they're all hawkish on China. It's more, what do we do about it? And similarly, the Democrats are really moving in that direction. So I, I at least like that framing of the debates. And then we're still going to have some very hard choices. What's this mean for the CHIPS Act and industrial policy and banning TikTok and forced deployments and the Pentagon budget, you know, all those other things. But at least once we have a clearer understanding of the threat, that's a start. One last question for you. They've brought back be all that you can be. 
doesn't that just immediately solve the recruiting problems that we have in the American military overnight? <laughs> so, well, if it's, yeah, be all you can be with you know, clear patriotic service and not rampant wokeness, I, I hope so. But yeah, hey, uh, you know, the, the, the recruiting commercials from my high, uh, high school days are ringing in my ear again. Yeah. <laughs> Will Inbiden is the executive director of the Clements Center for National Security at the University of Texas at Austin. He is also the author of The Peacemaker, Ronald Reagan, The Cold War, and The World on the Brink. You can check out his article, Be Skeptical of Reagan's October Surprise at War on the Rocks, warontherocks.com. And you can read more about these issues, other issues, uh, politics, culture, and more at thespectator.com, where I am editor-at-large. Will, thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. Thanks, Ben. It's been great being with you. 